God says through Jeremiah, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not not been lain with, in the ways hast thou sat for them, as the Arabian in the wilderness, and thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast a whore's forehead, thou refusest to be ashamed. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, my father, thou art the guide of my youth? Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. May God bless his word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jeremiah. Thank you for the people of Judah. Thank you for the long-suffering that you demonstrated to them and that the long-suffering that you demonstrate to us. Father, we, we... Thank you and and acknowledge tonight that you are a holy God. You must punish sin. We understand the nature and justice must take place. But Father, we are so grateful uh, that uh, you are not slack concerning your promise, but that you are long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And for those of us that are saved, Uh, that are washed in the blood. We're grateful, Father, that even in your daily dealings with us, you are merciful and long-suffering. But Lord, help us not to abuse that. Uh, Help us to quickly take heed that we would repent of our sins, that we would get right with you, and that we would um, open the channels of blessing and, and enable you to bless us Father, we live in a country that is in desperate straits, and we pray that you'd have mercy on America. Uh, More and more of our fellow Americans do not sense the pending judgment judgment that is upon us, that we know uh, that you are being provoked. As less and less people believe in thee, uh, that means, Lord, the responsibility for the few of us to pray and to, to intercede on behalf of our country is great. So please have mercy on America, and Lord, help us to be faithful as a shining light in this community, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name, amen. Good to see you tonight. Take your Bibles again, please turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. Just to kind of, again, back up a little bit as we look at what, who Jeremiah was and when he ministered. Uh, Jeremiah uh, was, an act, was active as a prophet uh, from the 13th year of Josiah, who was the king of Judah. So that was about 626 B.C. until after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of Solomon's temple, 586-587 B.C. And uh, so his, his ministry... Uh, spanned the reigns of five different kings. Josiah, Jeho- Jeho- Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, 
and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. So he had about a 40-year ministry uh, that saw, uh, in fact, he was there for uh, the end of Judah, preaching for them. He was the last prophet to, to challenge them to repent and get right. And, of course, uh, he, he was not heard. And so it's interesting because all the prophets that went before him, many of them ministered to Israel uh, before Israel fell. And their messages were very similar because God's dealings with his people were very similar at that time. Uh, you know, we lived, they lived in an agricultural society, both, both kingdoms during all that time. So a lot, of, a lot depended on, on agriculture, on farming, uh, on, on rain, on their, their, you know, their harvests. And uh, if God wanted to get their attention, and he did, uh, that's where he would hit them, and he did. And it's interesting. So here we are now. We're in Jeremiah chapter 3. And as we looked uh, extensively at verse 1, uh, again, a reference to Deuteronomy 24. So look at that real quickly just to set up the scene. They say, or it says, uh, If a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Remember that that's the issue of Deuteronomy 24. Uh, it was a time where God uh, permitted them to, to divorce. Uh, Jesus would say later on because of the hardness of their hearts. Uh, but he, he made some specific rules that once they divorced, they got remarried. He was not forbidding a second marriage or a third remarriage. The biggest, the big challenge in this text, and this is why Jeremiah is bringing it up, is if you, you, know, you leave that present husband, you can't go back to your previous one. You can't go back to the first one. You can't go back to the previous one. And we looked at, in the last couple of weeks, we looked at uh, why that was. You know, there's a lot of good reasons uh, why God did that to protect women, understanding that whole thing. Go back to those first two messages. But here's the point. God said, if you do that, if you violate this, you pollute the land. And that's the thing that Jeremiah is picking up on, is that their disregard for uh, their relationship with God, what God articulated to them, what God said to them over the years, that this is the way I want to be worshipped, this is what I want you to do, this is how you can sanctify me and set me apart. When you do those things, uh, you're, just, you're, you're blessing me, uh, you're, you're pleasing me, uh, it is for your benefit. And sometimes we understand why God gives His laws, sometimes He, he clearly tells you why, Sometimes we don't, but the bottom line is when they ignore it and they purposefully snub their nose at it and just disregard it, there are consequences that affect the land. And um, so he says, Shall not the land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. So they were not guilty of you know, just going to one false god. And by the way, this whole thing, in the Old Testament, God with Israel... He would liken fornication, harlotry, prostitution, whoredom, uh, and, and they would be synonymous with idolatry. Pagan worship, the, the Canaanite deities that they worshipped, uh, they're, they're synonymous. He would use that perfect illustration. And many times in those Canaanite religious rites, there was great immoral sexual activity that went with the quote-unquote worship. And so a lot of times these things do overlap. 
So here it wasn't just that they went, let's say, you know, for a little while they left Jehovah, Yahweh, and they worshipped Baal. Or they left Yahweh and they worshipped um, Ashtaroth. They worshipped many gods. And the thing of it is, you know, and you might remember before Elijah said, how long to, this, to, to Israel, to Israel, he said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, serve him. If Baal, then serve him. You know, it was just because, and this is what they're continuing to do. Remember the answer? The people answered him not a word. <laughs> you know, they're like, they would not, they stood on the fence. And that's what they're doing now. Uh, they are, they would go through, they would practice their, fornication, their whoredoms, their idolatry, being involved in the Canaanite rituals. And at the same time, they would still acknowledge God, like, hey, we're still with God. You know, we haven't abandoned Him. And God wanted to communicate to them, this is not acceptable. You're not good with me here. So we looked at chapter 2 already. Chapter uh, 2, to understand chapter 2, uh, it is coming from the days of Josiah's Reformation. There was a time when it is believed. There was a time when Josiah uh, brought revival and destroyed the pagan, all the you know the, the pagan altars and all. And there was a time of revival with the people of God, but it was very short lived, and it became evident. In fact, all that's in Second Kings twenty two through chapter twenty three, uh, and it became evident that their reforms. Now, on Josiah's part, it was genuine, but on the people of God, on the people of Israel, on the Israelites, it was very shallow. Uh, yeah, they, they went through the motions and they got caught up maybe in the moment of revival, uh, but there was real, really no change of heart. And so now we move to chapter to verse 2 through 5. We're going to see three things tonight. First, in verse 2, we're going to see the evidence. So he's, he just charged them, you know, that... As if you were a wife, you, 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 know, you, you expect to come back to me. Shall I take you back? And then he lays out the evidence. Look at how you have betrayed me. Verse 3. And then in, um, for, So that's the evidence. Then verse uh, 3 is the event. That was what God did and what he would often do to get their attention. He brought a drought upon the land. And a drought back then, you, you know affected them pretty quickly. You know, within a span of months, if it would not rain and their harvest would not produce, that was their food, that was their livelihood. And so God would often get their attention by bringing a drought. And that's exactly what happened here. And he mentions the event in verse 3. We're going to look at how some of that is pretty interesting. Considering the false worship they were involved in and what it was supposed to produce. And then, and then verses 4 and 5 is the entreaty. Uh, again, where he um, a little bit shares about where they were at. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me? This was their shallowness. And, uh, and, and the fact that they were waiting, they were thinking God was going to forgive them. Because it's like when somebody apologizes to you, and they go, look, I'm sorry. Get over it. You know, and, and you, you're not really convinced that they're sorry. They haven't really borne forth fruit that there's been any change. Uh, and, and yet they're like, hey, get over it, would you? And that's, like, that's kind of like what we find there. So let's just jump right in. First, we look at the evidence. 
Now, again, verse 1, he charged them. He was, it ended, verse 1 ended with a question. Um, Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. Remember, that was kind of like hanging in the air. There were two ways to take that. But the bottom line is, the question is, you're going to come back to me? You're going to come back to me? And then now verse 2. Lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lain with. In other words, this is like uh, when it talks about a man lying with a woman in, in physical intimacy. Uh, and this is talking about uh, immorality and fornication. And that's the idea of it, which was what would took place in their high places. The Canaanites practiced uh, their false religion. They had all kinds of... Um, Altars and shrines that would have been very evident on the hills that Israel had involved themselves with. And Jeremiah is saying, you know, it's like he's looking all around and he's seeing all these shrines and these high places that were uh, clearly dedicated to their pagan idolatry. And he said, lift up thine eyes unto the high places and see where thou hast not been lined with. In the ways hast thou sat for them as the Arabian in the wilderness and thou hast polluted the land, going back to verse 1. You've polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. So let's break this down here. Again, the high places scattered all around Jerusalem where people went to pray and to practice their immoral rites of what's called the fertility cult. And they fooled themselves into thinking that they were honoring Yahweh because part of the ritual was praying. Now, of course, the Canaanites were praying to their God's small g, and Israel somehow thought that it would be okay for them to kind of incorporate this into their worship of Yahweh. And so when they prayed, uh, they would pray. It says, um, in the ways hast thou sat for them. There's a picture there that's very clear in the Old Testament referring to the immoral woman that would sit along the roadside waiting for men. Uh, much like Tamar, in Genesis 38, verse 14, the Bible says that Tamar put her widow's garments off from her, covered her with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which is by the way of Timnath, for she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given unto him for wife. So she went and literally played the harlot. And uh, there's a whole story there. Proverbs chapter 7 is a vivid picture. A father is encouraging his son to... Uh, to holiness and he says he's talking about the immoral woman to beware of her and he says now is she without now in the streets and lieth in wait in every corner and that's that's what the harlot would do she lieth in wait in every corner Uh, so she caught him and kissed him and with an impotent face said unto him i have peace offerings with me this day have i paid my vows therefore i came forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. This was an invitation to a young man to commit immorality. And if you look back at this phrase in verse 2, in the ways hast thou sat for them. As the Arabian in the wilderness, or some, uh, some think this is referring to those marauders that would uh, lie in wait along the path for, to overtake the travelers so they could rob them. Many others think that this was referring to the Bedouin, uh, people who would sell their wares and they would, you know, be along the road where the crowds would go to, to peddle, uh, to try to sell their metalwork and their craft work. And uh, as I read that, I was reminded we visited, uh, one day we visited Jamaica 
And when we were dropped off, we came to where I guess all the tourists go. And I literally felt like I was being attacked because all these people, this is their livelihood. They just descend upon you with all the things they've made to try to sell you, you know, what they have. And I remember just, you know, first I thought maybe I was famous. All these people are coming up to me and I realized, no, they're trying to sell something. Uh, And this is a picture of this. You know, I believe clearly uh, this is a picture of now Judah is now playing the harlot. And this is how God is interpreting their uh, pursuing these false gods and being involved in the things which were just despicable in God's eyes. And, and, uh, and that's the idea of as the Arabian in the wilderness, thou hast polluted the land with thy whoredoms and with thy wickedness. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 25. Uh, different time period, same, same sin. Thou hast built thy high place at every head of the way and hast made thy beauty to be abhorred and hast opened thy feet to everyone that passed by and, multi- and multiplied thy whoredoms. So again, God is, this is a theme we're going to be going through this whole thing. Any of the Old Testament prophets, when God was challenging Israel to come back to him, this was the theme. This was the picture, the idea of fornication, of unfaithfulness in marriage. And, and you and I can relate to that. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever watched Little House on the Prairie. Um, we, we have a couple, we watched a bunch of the earlier seasons and, um, you know, it's 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 one of those tug at the heartstrings kind of movies, you know. And uh, there's certain characters. If you haven't watched it, forgive me. Just kind of go with me here. There's certain characters that are notorious, and again, they're just actors. Mrs. Olson is probably the, you know, she's the most conniving. Uh, whoever she was, she in real life, I heard she was like the nicest actress, the nicest person on the set. But man, she played this obnoxious woman who was married to just the nicest guy. Mr. Olson was a lovable, just, you know, he was like the henpecked, uh, but he was just a decent man, at least in the early seasons. And when, when my wife watched an episode recently and she told me about it, we were both horrified. This is one of the later seasons. This now, I guess, airing on one of those channels that puts the oldies on. And Mr. Olson was going to, to you know, he, he was a store owner and he was going to another town, some convention or whatever, to sell whatever. And he, he boarded, he went into a boarding house where he would stay and they would make the meals. And there was a young lady that began to make his meals and showed him attention. And he began to be interested. Now, this is very un-Mr. Olson-like for those of you that know Little House on the Prairie, unless you've seen the later, the later seasons. And as my wife was telling me this, that, you know, he began to be attracted to her. And then she asked him, are you married? And Mr. Olson said, no, I'm not. And we're like, no, not Mr. Olson. No, he couldn't do this. And then it ended up as horrible. Now, if, if you're a, you know, if you're, you know, anything about Little House on the Prairie and again, this Based on reality, but this whole thing was just fiction. Mr. Olson ended up kissing this girl. Oh, my wife and I were crushed. You know, we felt betrayed. How could Mr. Olson, this squeak? Now, mind you, most of the people are watching this are saying, you know what, you can't blame the guy because look at his wife, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we, we were so, it was so un-Mr. Olson-like. And in fact, he kissed her 
right as Pa Ingalls walked into the store. You know, now this is just, again, the, the, the movie series. This did not happen in the books, which I read to my daughter was many years ago. But that shock, you know, just as we were talking about it, we're thinking, and again, it's all fiction. I understand that. But, you know, you, you, you kind of get attached to these characters. And uh, Mr. Olson was just a lovable guy that you felt sorry for him because he was so belittled and so henpecked, as they say. And for him to do this, it was pretty shocking. Well, here God is trying to get Israel's attention by, by saying, listen, this is, you know, I am the, I'm the, the husband. You're being unfaithful to me. And he's using this scenario. Uh, that's how God views idolatry. Uh, as marital infidelity, because they were in a covenant relationship together, as I've mentioned so many times. And this was personal. This was a high offense to God. Their disregard for his ways, in, in remember, he is a jealous God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He will not share his glory with another. That was one of the primary commands, the first commandment in the Decalogue. And they were violating this with total disregard and acting like nothing was wrong. Which, by the way, is characteristic of uh, the immoral woman. The, 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 in, in, um, as you know, we've, we've quoted in Proverbs, the immoral woman, it, it pictures her uh, like her, when she indulges in her immorality, it's like she's eating food and then she wipes her mouth and she says, I've done no, no wickedness. And that, that's exactly what Israel was doing, Judah was doing. They were involved in incredible wickedness by their, their pagan idolatry, by being involved in the, the Canaanite false gods, and they couldn't understand why God was making a big deal about it. So here's the event now. And the, the fact that what happened was they weren't paying attention to God, God was going to get their attention. And by the way, in Hebrews chapter 12, he does the same for us today. If you're his child, he loves you so much that he will lovingly chasten you. We always look at chastening, chastening as this negative thing that, you know, God is mad at me and there is that aspect of God's displeasure. But the Bible doesn't say whom God hates, he chastens. The Bible says whom God loves, he chastens. So look at verse 3. Therefore, okay, look at look at all the evidence, look at the high places, look at all the places where you've committed your idolatry, your whoredoms, your prostitution against me. Therefore, the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast a whore's forehead. That goes back to that, that idea that uh, people that are involved in sexual immorality will often justify it and refuse to see that they are wrong. And, and he says this, and by the way, this will be a theme now. I think it's the first time he's mentioned it yet in the book of Jeremiah, this idea, he said, and thou refusest to be ashamed. That word ashamed is going to be used 20 more times. It's used 21 times in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, in uh, chapter 6 and verse 15, I'm going to give you, I'm going to quote to you what he says there. And then the same exact statement is found in chapter 8 and verse 12. So we'll get to that. But he says this, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall, 
At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. So the idea of they weren't ashamed, they wouldn't even blush. And the implication was, you should be very embarrassed by what you're doing. But they were not. They refused to be ashamed. And so God hit them where it hurt in their survival, in their food. And he used the drought to get their attention. And he's done that before. Listen to Amos chapter 4 and verse 7. And I also have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon every one city and caused it to not rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So this is a way that God would get their attention. So again, verse 3, Therefore the showers have been withholden, that's one Hebrew word, and there hath been no latter rain. There were two main rainy seasons uh, for during that time for the farmers. Uh, October and November was the showers that are mentioned, the early rain. And then in March and April, uh, a different word is used, that was the latter rain. Both of them were critical for the agriculture. Both of them were critical for the crops. And so, you know, most of them were farmers, and the ones that weren't farmers were very interested in what was going on because it would mean their supply as well, their food. And so God would use this drought to get their attention. And that's exactly uh, what happens. Now, it's interesting. You go, uh, go back 200 years, more than that, a little bit. Same thing happened. You might remember with, um, with Elijah and uh, you might remember that... Um, King Ahab, this was back when Israel was still a nation. There was a three and a half year drought. And, and it's important, the reason I quote this is King Ahab, the king of Israel, he came to, to Elijah when he finally saw Elijah and something very revealing. You remember what he said? He said, when he saw Elijah, he said in 1 Kings eighteen seventeen, he said, art, art thou he that troubleth Israel? He really viewed Elijah as a troublemaker. He was the guy that was causing the problems. You know what I see happening in America? Is those that are seeking to encourage people to righteous living, those that are calling sin, sin, and realizing that there's so much more to this than just somebody's personal preference, we are being not only marginalized, but demonized. And, and just like Ahab, uh, and I th- it seems to be a trend... More and more, it's the Christians that are the ones that are being the, the pain. They're the ones that are troubling America. They're really believing that. Now, of course, you keep in mind, folks, not only should we not apologize, we need to do things lovingly, but remember Elijah's response. And I love this. In First um, Kings 18.18, 18, he answered. He said, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed Balaam. So Elijah did not budge. And, and was Elijah the problem? Did, because Elijah predicted, and he's the one that called upon, you know, he predicted this drought that was going to come. And since it was from his mouth to their ears, they looked at it as Elijah did this. You know, Elijah's not that powerful. He's representing God. God's the one that did it. But once you remove God, 
then you start wrestling against flesh and blood. And they were wrestling against Elijah. Remember what Paul said in the New Testament, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our problem is not with other people. If we have a problem, we've got to look at our relationship with God. So, here we are. Their shrines, everything was there. And now here's, here's the thing. If you think about the religious rites, the, the cult of Canaanites, worshiping all these false gods, it's interesting because you know they had all these gods, but the reason they prayed to them, the reason they had their high places and their altars, and the reason they sacrificed and prayed was to continue the cycle of life. And so they would pray to their gods for rain. In fact, remember the showdown on Mount Carmel uh, with the prophets of Baal. And it's interesting because those prophets were, you know, the ones that would pray to Baal, uh, they were very used to praying for Baal for rain because that was part of their religion. And if, if it was, there was a drought in the land, then they would practice them more. So what's interesting is if Israel participated in this kind of false religion, and they, you know, but they, they, they looked at it as, you know, we're still worshiping Yahweh. You guys may worship Ashtaroth. You guys may worship Baal. Uh, we're, you know, we're doing your thing here. We're involved in your practices, but, you know, we're kind of play, praying to Yahweh. Somehow they did this. Listen, it's interesting. They're praying to the, the God that's going to bring rain. And the fact, in fact, he mentions the idea that um, there were no trees. It, it you know, if it's, if, where there's a drought for a long time, it affects the vegetation. And so the very fact of the barrenness of the high hills and the altars was a testimony, a somewhat ironic testimony to the fact that you are praying to these gods for the very purpose of rain, and it is not coming. And God says, therefore, because of this, the showers have been withholden. And there are no latter rain. And thou hast a four's head. How sad it is that uh, these people uh, would not see. And, and again, there's various times in Israel's history. Uh, in fact, later on in chapter 36, we are going to see that it was drought, a different drought, that prompted the king Jehoiakim to fast. And thus Baruch uh, read... Uh, Jeremiah's original scroll, there's a whole story there that's very interesting. Um, but one, one comment, one theologian made this, this statement. If the people's worship at the shrines was prayer for rain, and it was, Jeremiah 14, we'll get to that down the road, but that's what they were praying for, it was counterproductive. And then listen to what he said. He said, Yahweh doesn't say that he prevented the rain. He rather implies that Moral order affects cosmic order. In other words, that this is not necessarily God intervening, but this goes back to the idea. And the, the reason there's something to this is he's talking, remember he talks about polluting the land? That when a people would pollute the land, that again, Yahweh didn't, isn't the one that this is, not ultimately Yahweh was, but Yahweh doesn't say that he prevented the rain. He rather implies that moral order affects cosmic order. Again, you polluted the land. And it's very clear in Scripture, throughout Scripture, 
You pollute the land and there are consequences. It's almost like when God created the world. He created it. And clearly, just let's go back to Israel. Before they inhabited the land of Canaan, who owned that land? God did. And because of the vileness and the wickedness of the Canaanite people, God, they forfeited their land and God gave it to Israel. And so many people will look at that and say, oh, you know, they were, the Israelites were savage and they went in and took on someone over, over someone's property. It was God's property. And these people had violated, polluted the land. There's no regard for God. Sometimes we think, you know, Israel, the people of God, the children of God. So God deals with them differently. And he does. He deals with them as a covenant people, just like he does those of us that are saved. But that does not mean that there is not punishment for wicked countries. You know, that that does not mean that if America forsakes God and we just go around and most of us claim that we are no longer Christians, that, oops, we're no longer accountable to God. It doesn't work that way. In fact, our disregard for God and our relationship in His ways can pollute this land and can be the, our ultimate undoing is, is that this, this is built in and, and we're going to forsake God. There are going to be consequences. And, and clearly, to some degree, that is absolutely happening. I read a story about a, a three men that back in May of 1948 robbed a bank in Hoyt, Kansas, and they stole a whopping $1,000. Now, back in 1948, uh, that would be about $12,500 today. So it was not nothing. And these three men robbed the bank. And then a few days after that, there was a, a serious car wreck. Somehow the police got word that, that you know the, the two men that died in the in the uh, car rack, wreck were the bank robbers, so they closed the case. And, uh, you know, case closed. They thought the, the prisoners died. And then four years later, something very interesting happened. On a Sunday morning in Seward Avenue Baptist Church, a young man named Al Johnson stepped up to the pulpit and shared with the congregation that the day before, he had gone to the district attorney and confessed his role in that crime. He said, I thought about the bank robbery many times. He was a teenager when the crime happened. He was now a young adult. He said, I prayed about it and asked the Lord to give me an answer. And it seemed that he would give me only one answer. And that was to give myself up. He revealed that he actually borrowed the money, borrowed money to repay the bank, uh, his share of the stolen funds. The statute of limitations had already expired. But he still had a conscience. And he said even if it meant going to prison, he could not keep the secret any longer. And he also agreed to help the authorities to locate the other two men who had not died as they thought. Uh, and as he went through it, it reminds me of a verse the Bible says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have what? Mercy. And that's all God was trying to do to Israel, was to get them to acknowledge the, the seriousness of their sin. I want to remind you, as we move on to the last point, verses 4 and 5, uh, I want to remind you that, 
they weren't coming clean. They were, as Jeremiah was preaching to them. In fact, look at verse 4. Wilt thou not from this time cry unto me, my father, thou art the God of my youth? Uh, Let's go back to um, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 35. Let me quote that to you. Remember, it says, Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. So Judah was saying, you know what? What's the big deal? What is the big deal? And and, and now they're in trouble, so they're crying unto God, crying out for his help is the idea. They're calling him my father, as if they're in a healthy relationship with him. They're calling him the guide of his youth, which there's it's difficult Hebrew word that that phrase, uh, the idea of it could be that their teacher that, you know, this was their mentor, that the guide of my youth, there's different terms again, but clearly they were they were treating their relationship with God as if things were OK and they were not OK. You remember back in chapter two and verse 19, God said, thine own wickedness shall correct thee and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord. So they have forsaken God. Remember again, they've committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they viewed them out cisterns that can hold no water. So they have forsaken the Lord. And now verse 5. They say, will he reserve... Now, by the way, this changes now. First, they were addressing God in verse 4. Now they are talking to one another rhetorically. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? They're asking this among themselves rhetorically. Will he reserve his anger forever? Today, what that would be like saying... How long is God going to hold a grudge against us? Will he keep it to the end? In other words, is he never going to drop it? You ever hear someone say that? You know, it's the idea is, boy, man, this guy. And by the way, let's we learned something about forgiveness. By the way, the title of the message tonight, just to let you know here right at the end, is forgiveness without repentance. And so they're they're now talking rhetorically about God and saying, what is with him? How, how long is he going to hold this grudge? Can't he just drop it? And clearly that was their e- evidence that they, they were really not at all really sorry or repentant for their sins. It reminds me in the New Testament in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Remember what Jesus said? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? That's... The, the Old Testament translation right here in this text. They were, they were so shallow in their relationship with the Lord. They were shedding, you ever heard this phrase, I, crocodile tears? I did some investigation. I wondered, do crocodiles even cry? They had tear ducts. And apparently when they've been out of water for a while, uh, their, their tear ducts begin to put a lot of, you know, wash their eyes out. So they don't get dried out when they've been out of the water for so long. Uh, and some people have even said when, the, when they've witnessed a, shark, uh, a, a crocodile attack that, um, that their eyes are tearing. Uh, like obviously they're not sad. 
Uh, and, and so they call that crocodile tears. When somebody, when somebody sheds crocodile tears, it's saying that there, it is insincere remorse. It is, or they're, maybe they're even crying. And, and I've seen people do this where they're crying, but their life does not really demonstrate that they're really sorry. Many times people are sorry they got caught. Or people are sorry that they have to experience the consequences of their actions like a drought. And that's where Israel was. They were shedding crocodile tears. Now, we close with this. Our God longs to forgive his people. That's his heart. You look at the New Testament when with church discipline or the idea of where rebuke and reproving and correction are necessary. God's heart and our heart should be always restoration of fellowship with God and with fellow believers. And our God is so willing to forgive. Missionary David Livingston, who went to Africa, he had the opportunity, and he went into a, a, a very heathen, brutal tribe, and uh he found out about a, a group of people, a band of people that had committed murder. And he went and presented the gospel to them. And then he wrote about it. And he said, I, am, I had more than ordinary pleasure in telling these murderers of the precious blood which cleanseth from all sin. I bless God that he has conferred on one so worthless the distinguished privilege and honor of being the first messenger of mercy ever that trod these regions so you know think about it there's a whole tribe of people and they've got to experience the guilt and the repercussions of their sin even if they don't acknowledge sin everyone's born with a conscience the gentiles you know they have the law written in their heart so uh, you can still have a guilty conscience and never have heard the scriptures and he counted it a privilege he was the first one that was able to go in and preach the gospel, and say that there is mercy to these people that really in any other setting had no hope. I heard of a a king who suffered much from rebellious subjects. And one day they all surrendered their arms, threw themselves at his feet, and begged begged him for mercy. And he pardoned every one of them. And one of his friends said to him, said to the king, didn't you say that every rebel should die? King said, yeah, I did see that. But I don't see any rebels here. <laughs> you know, They were all rebels, but they all repented, and, and he had a tender heart towards them. And God has a tender heart. He wants Israel to repent. He sent Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, for 40 years to preach to Judah before he would send judgment, which now we know the end of the story They never heeded Jeremiah's message and they ended up going into captivity. And even in that, at the end of Jeremiah, we have God offering to them hope. What a blessing it is. I close with this. Back in 2005, it was probably the most traumatic year for our ministry as people and um, crises. And uh, we had a a young lady that came to church and... um, made a profession of faith and it seemed to be growing a little bit. And she was in the middle of a really difficult marriage. She feared her husband. Her husband was abusive and uh, she had separated from him and, and just, you know, 
did not trust him. She was scared for her life. She got saved and tried to witness to him. And uh, he ended up coming. This was when we were in the old building. He ended up coming to church on one Sunday and made a profession of faith. And we were all excited because, folks, the gospel can deliver people. Two weeks later, he killed his wife. And uh, I think what happened was he probably was using that for leverage to get back on good graces with her. It appears that she let her guard down one time uh, and let him take her to work. uh, and, And that is where he killed her. And I think, you know, we don't see people's hearts, do we? We can only see fruit and actions. Clearly, Jeremiah, uh, he was aware of the reforms under Josiah and how shallow they were. And now he's looking at the fruit of people who had really not given their hearts completely to to God. And so he is challenging them to repent. He is challenging them. And, And the fact that they were pleading, you know, and I'll read this last verse. Will he reserve his anger forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, Thou hast spoken and done evil things as thou couldst. The proof is in the pudding. And that's true with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for uh, giving your people historically space to repent. Many, many years. And not just, Lord, not just that you gave them space, that you were, you were long-suffering, but you sent messengers to lovingly warn them, to spare them of the judgment that they were bringing upon themselves. Father, we live in a day in America where we are provoking you and uh, our nation has set aside uh, acknowledging you and we are provoking you and we are uh, polluting this land as polluted as it can get. And Father, we who fear you and worship you we sense that it all is not well with America. We sense that your judgment is just around the horizon. And Father, I pray that we would lovingly preach the gospel and snatch as many people from hell as possible. Lord, may we be like Jeremiah and just be faithful to proclaim your truth. And we'll thank you, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please stand. Let's take out our hymn books and we will close in song.